Hey friends, Mike Myers here with the Songwriting for Guitar podcast, episode number 33, Judy Stakey. Now, before we dive into this week's episode, I am so excited to announce that I will be co-hosting an amazing workshop May 1st at 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central with my good friends, Bonnie Baker, Sarah Spencer, Ali Moss, Bess Rogers, some of them have been on this podcast for our Trust the Process workshop, and we're going to be partnering with American Songwriter for this one. Now, we did our Trust the Process workshop at the beginning of this year. It was fantastic. So we decided to do another one. We're going to be focusing on brand new chapters, talking about things like how to craft a melody that moves, how to lean in to your individuality as a songwriter, how to quiet that damn inner critic that lives inside of you, how to care for your songwriting soul, expand your music vocabulary. So friends, if you are just focusing on technical things, technical, technical, but you're not cultivating your songwriter soul, guess what? You're getting only one piece of the damn puzzle. You need the other half. So all you have to do is go to americansongwriter.com, click workshop, and reserve your ticket. This is something you don't want to miss. Remember, May 1st, 11 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Central is when this workshop kicks off. Now, Judy is a legendary music publisher. She was senior creative VP at Warner Chapel. She worked with Cheryl Crow, Katy Perry, Michelle Branch, Joy Williams. But to me, she's also been a fantastic mentor, friend, song critiquer. I found out about Judy maybe a couple years ago and attended one of her songwriting retreats. And I was in a just a weird spot creatively. I didn't feel that inspired. I was kind of going through a creative rut. I was not doing a lot of self-care either. But after taking Judy's retreat, it was transforming. There were so many people that I met there. Judy's view of what songwriting and the craft of songwriting should be made a gigantic impact on me that I knew like, okay, that is the person that I need to keep on talking to and spend as much time as possible. And since then, we, we've done a few things together in terms of workshops. More importantly, she has helped me tremendously in just like my guidance in whether a song is like up to par or what needs work. She's always kept me in line and she is so sweet, so wonderful. I could just go on and on about this intro of how much she has done for me and how much she means to me and my creative journey. But we're going to hear from her. We're going to hear about her story. So we are going to jump into it. Episode number 33, Judy Stakey. Oh my goodness, Judy. Thank you for doing this. I Anytime I get a chance to spend time with you, talk to you, I feel better emotionally, just in general, creatively, because you're one of those people that I feel like you could talk to you. I, I could talk to you for 10 minutes and immediately for the next week, I feel empowered in those 10 Aww. minutes. Thank you for that reflection. I appreciate oh, it. Uh, but I am so oh, I'm glad to be I'm here. I'm so pumped to talk to you because you have a, a million interesting stories. I feel because, like you know, all your time of people that you've worked with and were at Chapel. But I, besides all of that, I want to get into what made you interested in pursuing a career in music from the beginning. I had no choice. There was there was no there was never any other decision. Um, and it's interesting because I, I, you know, I talk to a lot of songwriters and musicians and so forth and ask them that, that question too. And 
we have a lot of the same answer is that I came out of the womb singing and dancing. <laughs> That's what my mother said. I was just like, that was it. And I thought music was the most amazing thing that I'd ever, ever, ever encountered. I mean, it's out of thin air. You get this, you get these words and these melodies and it makes you feel so amazing, you know, and comforts you. And I just, I just, I sang and danced my whole entire childhood. So for me, there was just no choice. I had no idea what I was going to do. Okay. <laughs> I had no idea because that was the other thing is that like everybody else was like, well, I want to be a stewardess. It's like, okay, here's what you have to do. Here's the requirements. Or if I want to be a doctor, here's yeah. what you have to do. But to be, you know, to love music or like, what am I going to do? I didn't quite know. So I did want to sing and dance. I mean, I that's what I set off to do was to sing and dance. Yeah. But somewhere along the way was I say there was no internet back then, so it was much harder for me to go. How do you get to Broadway? You know, um, and if you don't have parents that are you know versed in this or have connections, you were kind of you know at at the mercy of your neighbors and and what your you know what your community knew. It was way different back then. Yeah, that was interesting. The community you're surrounded with, did you have examples of music? Anyone that was doing something with music? Or was this purely just something you just kind of like? No, no, I mean, I had one one girl in high school who was going for voice lessons and, you know, she was starting to like do things. And I was like, oh, I want to watch her. And then she didn't do anything. So no, not really. I mean, it was, it was hometown. I was in a uh, a choral group, you know, called the Hilltoppers. And it was out of choir. There were 16 of us for uh, eight girls and eight boys, alto, soprano, so forth, which was really fun. But I had no idea. You have to understand, I didn't know there was a music business. I mean, I didn't know that there was a place to go to, you know? Um, yeah. And when I found out that there was, it was like, oh my God, it, it was like Disneyland to me. That's what it felt like. You know, that there was like, you could go to A&M Records on La Brea and there was a, it was a whole lot full of buildings and this is where they made music. There was a studio and there was publicity and there was marketing and all the creative people and everybody was around, you know, you would go into these companies and they were just filled with employees that all they were there to do was to make the artists successful. I had no idea that was available. And I went to USC. How do you get from that, you know, from a, you know, a small town choir, no one does music to suddenly finding yourself on a lot where it's just like, shit, this is where music happens. How do you bridge that? How do you make that happen? I'd like to say that I'm a really good listener and I've been listening since the beginning. So I went to USC. You would think that somebody asked me recently, well, you went to USC. Wouldn't they have all these connections and stuff? I said, now they do. Back then? I said, not at all. I said, I went to USC and it was either, you know, you were going to be a, an opera singer or you were going to be in the symphony. And when I found that out, I was just like, because I got a music scholarship, I was very disappointed. <laughs> I didn't know what to do because that's not what I wanted to sing and dance. And I should have gone into acting, you know, and then sang and danced on the side. But I graduated from USC, had no idea what I was going to do. I was getting my nails done. The woman who sat next to me was hearing me talk about how I just graduated, blah, blah, blah. And she said, hey, you know what? I am a manager at a sales company and we're, I'm always looking for somebody. Why don't you come in and interview with me? And I was like, 
all right. You know, it's like I needed a job and I didn't want to go do retail. And all my friends were like going to be salespeople for Procter and Gamble. And I was like, oh my God, slip my wrist. So I went in and interviewed and um, she said, this is all you have to do, you know, Monday through Friday. I said, great. And I got sales training. I mean, I got real sales training. Um, and we were, it was an executive recruiting company. So you took guys from Coca-Cola and then you placed them at seven up if there was a, a position open. Mm-hmm. It was a temp agency basically for executives, but I learned a lot and I was there for three months and there was only two women, me and my boss, everybody else was men. So when this woman from New York moved out here and she was working for the New York company and she moved out to LA and she walked in the office, well, she was a woman. So of course she was going to stand out, but she stood out because she was, she had jet black hair. She had heels on that were, you know, six inches. She was very short. So six inches. She had ruby red lips. I mean, she was was really pretty, but she was, she, she was noticeable. And we became friends and she's, I said, what, you know, why did you move out here? She goes, I came to get in the music industry. I was like, what? Wait, 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 hold on. What did you just say? I was like, I want to be in the music business, the music industry. I want to work in it. I'm like, work where? What do you do? What, what are you talking about? And I just followed her. I mean, we, we both quit the job after a month and, um, she got a job at, a, a Barry Rothman, uh, the law offices of Barry Rothman. And he was an entertainment lawyer and he represented Dave Mason, who was big at the time, the emotions, which was a, a three girl singing group, uh, sisters, uh, Ron Wood of the Rolling Stones. We had offices on Sunset Boulevard. And I mean, she had all offices on Sunset Boulevard. And so she went to work. She was his assistant. She was like the office manager assistant. It was a very small office. She lasted a week. She was no more assistant than she, she was never assistant. She, she didn't know what to do. (laughs) And he was a pain in the ass, but we didn't, we didn't quite know what a pain in the ass he was, but she called me and said, why don't you take this job? I got a job across the street at a publishing company. I said, okay, I'll come take the job. Well, I lasted for nine months with Barry learning everything I could about the (laughs) entertainment industry. I learned what BMI and ASCAP because there was no classes at USC like there are now, you know, now everybody knows about everything. Then I had no idea what those things were. So I worked in the law office. There were a couple of lawyers there that one to this day, is Eric Greenspan is still one of my dearest friends, um, did a lot of business with him. But you know, we, we helped each other through the, the chaos of the boss that we worked with. Linda goes over and works for a publishing company across the street called Dunhill Publishing. It's called Dunhill Records. And I'm like, what do you do? And she's like, this is, I plug songs. And I'm like, Oh, I want to do what you do. <laughs> so <laughs> she went to, she left Dunhill and went to Arista Music Publishing. And she was there for maybe a month or so. And the president, it's a five, five person company. The president mm-hmm. needed a secretary. So Linda said, I've got somebody for you. Called me. I came over, got that job and worked as a secretary for Billy Michelle at Arista Music under the Clive Davis umbrella back then when it was a very, very small company and went there for seven years working my way up. Yeah. I mean, sitting next to the manicurist, taking that job and meeting Linda Blum, you know, I mean, she's a very big part of my story because I mean, she got me my two jobs that got me into the music business, you know? Do you feel like, you know, from that story of you said at the very beginning that you were good at listening do you feel like 
sometimes we're we're inundated, especially now with so much social media and things. We're it's so noisy that we're not taking yeah. time to listen. That we miss moments like that. Like we miss a Linda. We miss a person that is literally right in front of us because we're so we're oversaturated with so much and we're talking, we're, we're not listening for the doors that are ready to open up for us. We're so busy worrying about the future that we're not living in the present. We're so worried about the things that we did in the past that we're missing what we're doing today, which is basically what you're saying is that we do, we move at a very fast pace. There are signs all around us, you know, our, our thoughts and ideas produce our, our reality. Our stories produce our reality. And the way people talk, the way, the way you tell your story is how you live your life. And so if you're not listening to yourself and how you talk, you're going to be missing other things. It's very interesting. I had a, a conversation with a, a friend this weekend who is going through a lot of things at work. And um, she said, well, you know, I've got to find my confidence. I don't have confidence. I don't have confidence. And I said, hold on here. I said, do you go to the market and pick up groceries? And I said, drive a car home. She goes, yeah. I said, well, you meant to be pretty confident to go into the store alone and know what you're going to buy and drive a car home. And, you know, I said, you're very confident when it comes to picking up your husband's cleaners and making sure that all this stuff mm -hmm. is done and you, you have this job. And you're, I said, so I said, your confidence may you know, it may be a little less right now. We maybe have to pump your confidence up, but you have confidence. Let's change that story. Let's, let's switch it. So instead of like, I don't have any confidence. I'm no good. I'm not, you know, it's like, okay, I know you're feeling like that in this moment, but let's think about that because that language is not going to get you out of your situation. I feel that's one of your gifts. Because I remember doing your retreat and I remember when we would say mm -hmm. something, you'd be like, oh, that's interesting. What you said right there, pause. Could you tell me more about right. that? And it's like the mm -hmm. thing that we're so quick to breeze over and be like, oh, that's that's not important. That's not. And suddenly you go, actually, that's really interesting. Again, that's right. your key of just listening. And did that because, you know, to be a secretary, you know, you were there and eventually working your way to Warner Chapel and eventually, you know, picking songs. You feel like that listening ear just got better and better and better. It was like the strength that you had. You leaned into it like and you were like, I can fucking kick ass at this. <laughs> you know, it's the combination of 10,000 hours. You know, you have to, you you know, after a while, the practice makes perfect. Um, and. At the very beginning, I had really good mentors around me. My first boss, Billy Michelle, rest in peace, may he, taught me how to listen to songs. So he would bring, there was Billy and me, there was a head of copyright and her secretary, and Linda, who was the creative person. That was it. There was five of us. So when, you know, Billy was listening to songs, he would say, Judy, come in, Linda, come in, you know, Tom, we'd all go in and we would listen to these songs. And he would say you know, oh, I don't like this. And I'd be like, well, why not? You know, so he would say, this is why it doesn't work for me. The chorus doesn't come in till two minutes and the chorus should come in at 45 seconds. You know, like, you know, things like that, that you all of a sudden learned these little tricks and tips. And I also, I went into classes, you know, as soon as I was in the music business, there were some songwriters at the time teaching um, continuing education classes. That's what you did these at that time, you know. Um, 
So yeah. I went to, I remember going to Santa Monica College and taking a class from this writer who I know, Gloria Skleroff. At the, this is, you know, 30 years, 35 years ago. And she was getting up and she was teaching songwriting to this class. And I was like, okay, let me hear what you got to say, you know? So I was listening to everybody and then picking what I needed out of there to form my own language. That's where I think I excel at and and where what I've what I've really helped songwriters in is that I've created a language so that when we are speaking and your song is not up to par and I want to critique it and I want to communicate with you why not there is a language that I have developed so that it's easily understandable. The example I give is that if you wanted to be a, a cook then we would talk in, you know, I want, I need four ounces of that. I need four, four pounds of apples. I need a teaspoon of sugar. I need, you know, a pot. I need a pan. I need oven, you know, all of that. Um, and, uh, that would be a language. If you were, you know, going to make shoes, then it would be like, okay, I need a cobblestone. I, you know, I need, I need leather. I need, there's, <laughs> there's, there's language. I, that was a terrible one. Cause I don't know the language of that, yeah. but there's a language that each, each passion has. Okay. Well, in songwriting, what I found is that, you know, a lot of people would, would say these songwriters, well, I'm not crazy about your song. I don't think it's a hit. Go change it. The hook isn't good enough. And it would be these broad statements and you'd be, you know, my songwriters, like the A&R people, somebody would tell them that and they'd be like, what does that mean? The hook isn't good enough. And it's like, I don't like the dress. What don't you like about it? I don't know. I just don't like the dress. It's like, well, is it the hem? Is it the color? Is it the cut? Is it the fit? Is it the, you know, it's all those things. So it was creating a language so that they could hear me. You could hear me. The songwriters could hear me in so that they could get better. I mean, that, that's, that's why I'm there. I'm the coach. I'm there to get you to the Olympics. I'm not, I'm, you know, that's my job. My job is to teach you, to educate you, to inspire you so that you can write great songs so you can have a great living. I love how you said your language because you, mm-hmm. you took all the information, as you said, all those different avenues that you were immersing yourself in with music mm-hmm. and being like, ooh, yes. Yes. And it's like those different combinations you're comprising together to create, okay, this is Judy when she comes and she gives her, you know, explanation to the songwriter. She's going to take all these different avenues, but in a way that the songwriter can understand. And do you feel like, you know, I guess, yeah, you, you saw examples of, okay, you're doing the thing, but you're not communicating it effectively. Like you told them it's not a hit, but like, how can you help them? make the hit? What can they change to make that more viable, to make that like hit the mark as opposed to a blanket statement? It's not working for me. Well, and that's where my language comes in because I look at the song and I, for me, the song is the voice, the melody, and the lyric. So if the song isn't working, you first look as it, okay, is it the voice? Okay. Do we like the demo singer? Are you, do we like you singing it? Should you, should you hire a demo? You know, it's all of that. Do we like the actual voice that's going to carry this? The lyric, is it a good story? That's where I find the most work is, is lyrically because I find that songwriters are not taught and are not aware that they are all, they are telling a story. Lyrics sometimes are just, you know, there's a lot of poetry in them. And I, yeah, a lot of poets come to writing lyrics. The thing is, in poetry, 
you know, you can have four words or you could have 400 words. In a lyric, you have two to 300 words and you, and then it's once upon a time, you're telling a little slice of life. It's not a, an overall thing. It's, you know, it's, it's, you're telling a story. Um, and I, I feel that's where songwriters have their most work to do. And then you look at the melody and you, you say, okay, is your melody melodic? Is it singable? Is it repeatable? Is it, is it moving me? Is it angry enough? Is it happy enough? It, you know, so the emotions that go into a melody, we look at that. So it's, I start with the voice, the music, and the lyrics, and the melody, and we, we st I start by looking at a song like that and breaking it down. And then within the lyrics, like let's just say, okay, the, you know what? The melody is amazing. Oh, my God, it's perfect. It's perfect, and I love your singing. But, but the, the story is just not there. So let's break it down. And then I, what motivated you? I ask them what motivated you to inspire this story. So, and that's when I find that when somebody is not looking at the lyrics and just telling me, okay, this is what it's about. This is what motivated me. The day that, you know, I picked up, you know, my old boyfriend at the airport, he did. And then the story starts unraveling. And usually that's where I find the missing piece because they tell it to me. They say it in their description. And I'm sitting there listening to them. Yeah. Do you feel people try to like get to be too clever. clever sometimes? I do. Yeah, I was, I was exactly right. <laughs> We said it at the same time. I love it, Jinx. But it is. It's almost like sometimes people are trying too hard as opposed to just being like, this is what it is. It's like if I went up to my girlfriend, I was like, through all the stars and everything. And and, and meanwhile, she just would be like, I just asked you, do you love, you can just say, yes, I love you, as opposed right. to this 12 sentence that rambling almost. Rambling. And the other things that songwriters tend to do, I'm going to lump in a, in a generalization here, is the generalization. He done me wrong and then he came back and we made up and we're okay now. You know, it's just, there's a generalness to it. And what I find is that I, the way I teach is that think of it as a one scene in a movie. Mm -hmm. Think of it, you're, 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 you're giving me one scene in a movie. And the example I give a lot of times is that, you know, if you, if you're at the door and you're ready to knock and you're about to go and, you know, confront that your partner about, you know, the fight you had last night, well, if you're about to knock, the camera goes, okay, you know, scene. And you're like, oh, I'm about to, oh God, I don't know if I'm ready to knock yet. You know, it's like, he was so mad and I don't know if I'm going to, if I'm ready to like apologize yet. Okay. But once I knock on the door, that's a whole other scene. That's a whole other song. I've knocked. I hear him coming. Oh my gosh. Am I ready? <laughs> so it's, it's when we, you know, oh, I, I sat on the porch for a long time and then I knocked and then I came in and it's like, no, 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 no. That's way too much of the story. That's a movie. A song is a snippet. A song is one, one little scene. It's almost like one people are story. trying to write yeah. the opening credits and the closing credits. And meanwhile, it's just like, there was so much that happened in between. You didn't pick. You just kind of made that quick general like movie and it's done. We made up and we lived happily ever after. That's boring. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Boring. Yeah. Now, when you made the move to Warner Chapel, how did that happen? Wow, the universe was was right there for me. Um, I I worked at Arista for seven years, and 
the thing about the uh, the industry back then, and I'm sure that there's there's still to this point, is that once a secretary in your boss's eyes, always a secretary in your boss's eyes. So I graduated, and I was you know I was a song plugger, and I was general professional manager, and you know I had, I had my own assistant by this time, and the whole thing. But Billy still looked at, at me as his assistant, and um, I, there was just the the ceiling got very low there at Arista. So I went over to Screen Gems which was a division of the capital EMI system, record system. And I was there for three years and it was a great, great move because at Arista, it was very corporate. There was no studios. You know, we were in a high rise building. It, yeah, Clive was in New York. So it, it was just a very, we didn't have a lot of staff songwriters. So we, we relied on catalog. But when I got to Screen Gems, there were staff songwriters. And I was in charge of Carol King, Jerry Goff and Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil from the grill building days. So I had a plethora of songwriters. We had studios. We had a studio upstairs for us and EMI Records had a studio downstairs. So like the Red Hot Chili Peppers would be downstairs. Scott Cutler would be upstairs. It was writers all and artists just through this building. It was a hangout. It was, yeah. it was really fun. Um, <laughs> and I got so much more, um, I, I, was, uh, I was exposed much more to the creative process. I was in the room with the writers when they were writing. I could actually see what was going on instead of, if, I feel like I went to college with Arista and then I got to like experience life with Screen Gems. Well, what happened in 1988 is that um, we had, the world went crazy with mergers and acquisitions and Time and Warner had merged and then Warner went out and bought Chapel Music and they merged. So you had these two huge catalogs merging and now they were a million songs and they got rid of all the chapel people. Okay. Yeah. So Warner's took over this big conglomerate. All the chapel people are, are, you know, not all of them, but you know, that the president, the create Linda Blum is out of a job now. Okay. All those people, we screen gems, we were without a president. It just so happened. So they hired the president of chapel who then brought Linda Blum, all, all of their people, his people over to Screen Gems and forced me out. So it's so funny that, you know, here Linda Blum gets me my first two jobs and now she comes and takes over my job. So forces me out and I'm without a job for nine months. I, my first interview after, after I left, um, Warner Chapel called and I went over, my friend Sherry Saba called and said, get over here. We're going to need somebody. And I went over and interviewed with Mike Sandoval. And we sat in this room with boxes and people moving. I mean, they were moving offices. They had just merged. It was a bedlam. And he's like, I'd love to hire you, but we don't know what's going on here yet. I was like, okay. So I went home and I I started interviewing. I went to Nashville, interviewed with um, Tree Publishing down there and thought maybe I'd make the move down there. And I interviewed with Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, who were starting a smaller company, and I thought that would be fun, you know, working out of a house instead of a company. And then Warner Chapel called and said, "We want you." And I went, "I'm I'm there." So I just it was it was a waiting game. It was nine months of like, "Oh my God, am I going to make it?" You know, if I'm going to make rent. But thank God for savings. <laughs> How did you handle those nine months? Because I feel for some people, they're always in their music career in that sometimes perpetual state of waiting and 
when yeah. things aren't clear, doors haven't opened yet, and there's just this period where you know something's gonna happen, but you can't name that something, the place, the people. How did you cope with that sort of a lot of unknowns? I have I had a really great support system. I mean, by that time, I also had a, had established a good reputation for myself in the music business. Okay. So I'd gotten cuts. I had great songwriters, you know, I knew all the A&R people. So when I stopped, you know, to the point you were talking, it's like, I sat there, you know, there was a couple of weeks. I'm like, I'm never getting a job again. Am I going to have to go teach school? What am I going to do? You know, how are we going to, you know, it was, it, it was, it was hard, but I kept myself busy. I actually developed a, a dill mustard that I almost got off the ground um, and spent a lot of time like developing a recipe and, oh, I had the bottles, I had the labels, I held the whole bit. And then Warner Chapel called and I, I left it. <laughs> but the other thing that happened that was really great is that I had made friends with a, a gentleman by the name of Bob Pfeiffer who had moved out from New York right when I was leaving screen, at the end of Screen Gems. And we became friends and he worked at Epic Records. And his boss, Dave Novak, had just come from, I think, Australia or London to run the office. And Bob called and said, I know you're looking and stuff, but we've got an extra office here. Why don't you come in and work out of the office a couple of days a week? And you can listen to all the unsolicited tapes that we get in. And, you know, you can you can do stuff for us around here. I said, done. And so I would go in there. And, like, they had Billboard magazine that I could read, you know, because I, was, I wasn't going to you know, pay for that right now. So, you know, they had all the resources and all the gossip, all that, like all the people that came in, like I was just, I was hanging out with them. So I wasn't, I was still in it. You know, I still had my, my face was still being seen. So that's, those are really the things that, how I coped with it the most. And I had, like I said, I had savings. Do you have a, a jar still of your dill pickle? Like, or like the label, do you still have the label somewhere? I have it somewhere along the, yeah, I'll have to find it. I know it's in a file someplace. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good mustard actually. Oh, but that's just interesting to me. That is just like you entertain some things, but I, I think it's also encouraging that you found whatever you could do to still have a fast in music, still stay connected, even in the unknowns, whatever it looked like that you said yes. Yeah. And you were there and you were doing the thing that you do well, which was you were listening, you were just taking it in and just, what can I do? even in this period of unknown and just kind of like waiting for stuff to happen, which is huge. And then you get the call to Warner Chapel. Yeah. You're there. And the slew of people that you ended up mentoring with, songwriters. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, very Did fortunate. Very fortunate. I mean, that was like going to the Rolls Royce of publishing. Because there was nobody else came close for for five or six years. We won Publisher of the Year at ASCAP and BMI because nobody. We had a million songs. Everybody else was like, in the Screen Gems had a hundred thousand. So nobody came close to the reach, you know, that we had. That's amazing. Now I got to ask, how, you know, how did you discover, you know, because you, you discovered people like Sheryl Crow, you've worked with people like Katy Perry, uh, King and Country. How, what were some of those experiences? Like, when can you tell, like, even if there are things that you'd worked on, like there is, it's almost like you can see that pearl even in the, and you're just like, Oh, I've, that is, that is a gem right there. That is amazing. You know, I don't know. I, I would have to actually go back and really look at my roster. There weren't too many people that I needed a second yeah. date with. 
there, it's interesting because I've, I've been writing about this and I mean, everyone from, I mean, with Cheryl, I mean, I hadn't even heard her music and I met her at lunch and was so taken with her and just the way she spoke and her communication skills. And then she sang for me and I was like, oh my God, I love you. You know, for King and Country, I mean, they, they had to work. I didn't sign them right away. I liked them right away, but they had to, they didn't have their songs. They were really early on. So I worked with for King and Country for nine months before I signed them. But every time what happened with King and Country is that when I met them, it was like, okay, you guys are great, but you need work. Here's some homework. Here's some things I want you to do. Pay attention to on the songs. And then when I'm back here next time, we'll meet. And every time I would meet, they had developed even more and even more and even more. I mean, they were they were listening to what I had to say. That was it. They were listening to what I had to say. They were applying it. And and I must say, I, I had a partner on this, Sean Shankle, who's a wonderful producer, writer. He's based in Nashville and we did the boys together. But they, and then they came in with a song one day and it was like, all right, done. Let's get paper. Uh, you got it. I, I can see you as a group. I see, you know, you, you're, you're done. Yeah. So it's, it's seeing that little thing. And then, you know, I mean, there have been, there have been writers that I have said, okay, here, here's some homework and they just didn't do it. So it's like, okay, bye. <laughs> you know, but that was the thing. Cheryl was an A plus student. She did all her homework. I said, I'm not crazy about this. Go change this or go do this or, you know, and she went, okay, got it. I've done that. What else do you need me to do? <laughs> with all those people that you've seen that have taken the work and run with it and done it, are there certain characteristics when you can tell someone is just like taking the information and and you're like, I won't see them again. Like they're just going to. Oh, yeah. Why do you think oh, that happens? Yeah. Is it ego? Is it is it sometimes it's they think they're just in the right constantly? Oh, what? What are what's the stubbornness that just oh, kills yeah. some songwriters from just growing and knowing that you're not holding them back? You're just saying, hey, these are the things I've noticed. This is what you need to work on. It seems like you're giving them the answer to this. Do it. Right. But the answer I'm giving them is not the one they were looking for. What they were looking for was validation that they are good, that they are great. And then I could get them into doors, into, into you know, call up somebody and get a, a song placed or, yeah. or something. And it's like, you, you, there's a lot of work to be done before you get to that place. And most, I mean, most writers, I mean, majority of writers want to put the work in. The ones that don't want to put the work in are usually are not the ones that make it. That is true with anything. It's true with anything, you know? I mean, from being a mother to being a doctor to being, you know, whatever. It's like, if you don't put the work in, it's the result is going to be, eh. But there's, there's a lot, you know, I see a lot of clients who come to me for a consultation and I see them once and I never hear them again because it's like, okay, this is what you're going to need to do. And the other thing is that a lot of people love to hear themselves talk. They just, it, it, it's been very interesting. I've had a few clients, uh, not clients, but a few consultations, one, um, you know, one-offs that will come in and I will try and tell them something and they will, yeah, but you know, let me tell you why I wrote it. And it was, and it's like, I don't need you to defend it. We need to, we need to, to change. We need to critique it. And it's like, well, no, because I'm not, I don't want to change it because this is what it's about. And this is what it's like. Okay. If that's how you want, if you don't want to change it, if you don't want to develop yourself, then there's nothing I can do. 
So you lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. So, you know, it's, it's the willingness to develop. And, and Mike, the other thing is that, you know, we, we get out of college, you know, this mentality, if you go to school, go to school, you get out of college at 21 and then you go to work and you're done. Well, if you're 21 and you're still in the same job for 30 years and have not learned anything new, you're going to be in the same place. So my philosophy is that, you know, every day is a winding road. Every day is another day to develop. Another another day is to learn something new because every time I learn something new, it makes what I've got even richer. Every time I learn something new, I can go more places because I've got this knowledge now. I can do this because now I know this. It all goes hand in hand. And I, I think it's fascinating. I think that developing ourselves is the most, one of the most fascinating things we can do. It is because I mean, what you just said is one of the many reasons why I love you because it was like, it is, it's a never ending, the craft, the journey. It's not one where you reach the mountaintop. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And we all think it's about, you know, getting the prize. And it's like, once you have the prize, you got to do it again. (laughs) So it's more or less, if you don't join, if you don't enjoy the process, there's no point, then you're going to hate everything because the whole thing is a process. You got it. And that's the key. The key is, are you enjoying the process? Or do you like what you're doing? Are you passionate about this whole thing? It's like, if you're not, then go find something else that you're passionate about. And I think also it's, it's, it's the go try, go, go try this. And if you don't like, go try, you know, go find something. Yeah. Don't find what you're passionate about. That's, and only you know that. So you had your time at Warner Chapel and I love this. You pivoted and you were, you started to create your own thing. It's like for all this time, you were creating your own language too and the way to communicate and you were listening that it makes Mm -hmm. sense that eventually having your own brand and your own company, when did you realize like, you know, some people realize that, you know, oh, this door is closing. It's time to close it. Sometimes people close a lot of doors when it's just like they can't stand it anymore and they have to get on to the other side. Right. When did you realize, like, this is the time to make the switch? Like, I've been doing this. It's time for the next thing. It became very apparent, the music business, as the whole world changed in 2004, 2005. I call it the perfect storm financially in our in our society where you know, 9-11 finally caught up with us. And now we were, you know, there was two wars that we were paying for and the recession was on. Mm -hmm. The cost of going from digital, I mean, analog to digital was so expensive. And I'm, what I'm talking about is every single piece of paper had to be put into a computer or no one gets paid, let's just say, you know, Um, and that took a, a lot of money, a lot, a lot of money. So the music business changed drastically Um, And one of the things that they didn't want to pay for anymore was the development process. The development process takes time. It doesn't take as much time if the person that's developing knows what they're doing. But if not, you could have a writer signed to a company for three years, three or four years, and not have a cut and not be anywhere and beat out $100,000, $150,000. Well, those deals were not, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, 
everyone started looking at the books and going, what are you talking about? You pay a writer for four years and you have nothing on them? For me, my my average was one to two years and you know they'd be off and running. So but it's in the development process, all right? It's all those those all those hours spent with Cheryl Crow. I mean, she was a great writer. Don't get me wrong. I she's a great writer to begin with. Yeah. But it was all the just the little editing and stuff like that that set her foundation so that she built a you know a tall, tall, great company. So what happened was that that it's a longer story, but in those from 2005 to 2009, Warner Chapel went through some major, major uh, uh, employee shifts. And we, we, I had five different presidents in five years. Um, and you know, every other company went through their own thing too. It wasn't just us. It was just the timing of, of the whole world affected everything. And, um, I realized through having five different presidents after having one after for 15 years, uh, that they were not, respecting or honoring the process that a songwriter goes through to write songs. And in my last conversation with one of my bosses, I said to him, I said, there's no music business industry, anything without songwriters. Kelly Clarkson would not have a career. Faith Hill would not have had a career. Barbara Streisand would not have had a career. I can go on and on and on without song, even, even Dave, you know, Dave Grohl is a songwriter. So the Foo Fighters would have never happened if he had not been a great songwriter. But these songwriters have to write songs every single day of their life. And if Mm -hmm. they have to get up every day and do that, then they need to be inspired and nurtured and educated so that they can continue doing their job and doing it better every single day and changing with the times and all that. And when that was not respected at Warner Chapel anymore, I, I left. And hear this too is that the music business and industry, in my opinion, really um, separated, because the mm-hmm. the business is the is the internet. The business is the marketing and the promotion and the and the you know you can do anything in a minute now with you. Can, all the royalties are are transparent. Um, you know yeah. who sold out. You know you know if you two sold out at the Staples Center within two minutes, I can tell you how many women, how many how many men, what ages groups sold, you know, sold out the marketing and the statistics and what we have as far as how we can release music is amazing, but there's no room in that system for development. The industry is, is the rest of the world. And so that's why I left because if, you know, if you're going to be the next songwriter, major songwriter, Mike, then you need to have resources to help you get there. And that's, yeah. that's why I left because my, my position has not changed. What I've done at Warner Chapel is what I do now. I just don't have a stable of songwriters that are assigned to me. Um, and I've formalized what the language was that I was speaking at Warner Chapel. No one ever asked me to write it down. I just did my job <laughs> when I left Warner Chapel. I had to actually go, oh, now what do I do? How do I, you know, how am I going to tell everybody else what I do? So I actually, you know, I wrote a book and I, I put retreats on and I developed a methodology in this language so that I could take everything that I'd been doing at Warner Chapel with all these great artists and songwriters and make it accessible to anyone that wants to be a songwriter because everybody is a songwriter. Everybody writes stories, you know, and if you hum a few bars, you've just written a song. (laughs) But I feel like that allowed your reach to grow. So no longer was it just like a little bit within the of of what you were given, 
but now you were opened up to the world to essentially to find world. people and empower songwriters that needed that that boost yeah. that were hungry to find that guidance that were like here take my yeah. help me take my money tell me what i yeah. need to get better at and that yeah. has impacted so many people and you know you it's it's so interesting to hear how you're in, from where you started to where you are now that it was number one curiosity and it was always the thing that you just wanted to do like it wasn't like oh maybe i'll yeah. you know i'd like to be in nasa for a little bit i'd like to do it was just like no it's just like music <laughs> music music how the hell do i get there okay that yeah. and then you followed that which led you here i love too that's a winding story i always find the interesting stories are always ones because nothing is a straight and narrow path like i it's a boring story yeah. too if it's just like what happened well i got there and everything ended up fine Nope. As I say, I had no idea what I was going to do and look at me now, you know, and the, uh, you know, what I'm really proud of is that, you know, my, my company is 10 years mm. old and actually it's more than that. It's 11 years old. Oh my God. It's 11 years old. Um, but that my, I was listening to my playlist that I have on Spotify and I got to a section of songs and it's like five, six of my writers that I've, you know, I've, cons I've yeah. mentored and consulted have been to my retreat that are, have songs on, that they're yeah. doing well. I mean, that are like hit songs. Lauren Weintraub has a song on country radio right now called she's mine. That's brilliant. And Nell Maynard just has a brand new song with a new country guy too, that she just wrote. And um, Jasmine Valdez has an amazing song called uh, I just miss being in love. Oh my God. I listen to this song every single day. So there's all these, it's just one Milo's got like three or four songs on, on Spotify that are just doing well. So it's, yeah. I'm, it's, it's funny, but it's just like, these are the songs I'm listening to that I'm loving and I'm like so happy for them. Yeah. I love this. And I love what you're all about because the first time I met you in person, it was just like almost what you said about when that you didn't really need that second day. It's right in that first day of just like, Ooh, I can totally vibe with what this person is like sending out right now. Cause you didn't realize you need it, but then suddenly it's just like, this is speaking to a whole other area of your craft that was missing, or it's just like you were looking for those, yeah. those next couple pieces to get in line. And I feel like you do that for mm -hmm. so many songwriters. That's what oh, I love to do. And Judy, thank you so do. much for taking the time to chat with me. You're welcome. You know, listening back to this conversation with Judy, it's just I'm reminded of that time when I was in a creative rut right before I took her retreat. I was kind of in that place where it's like, Ugh. and guess what? We're always going to feel that there are moments those creative ruts are going to come and go. But there are absolutely things that we can do. I like to think of mentors as being guardrails. Think of when you're driving. A guardrail is never at the edge of the cliff. It's right next to the road. It's very close to the road. So if you hit it, it's just saying, hey, hey don't go any, go past this because you may go wildly off track over the edge. So if you do not have a mentor, if you do not have someone right now that is helping you kind of just keep some things in line, keep things in perspective to keep you on track, if you don't have that, those ruts get out of control and can last longer than they need to. 
So remember, if you're looking for guidance, if you're looking for mentorship, all you got to do, go to songwritingforguitar.com, click work with me, set up a one-on-one. I would love to help you get unstuck, get you back on track, get you in line with something like a three-month, six-month goal so that we know what you need to be working on so that you can have that focus, you can have that energy, that drive, that passion. So remember, songwritingforguitar.com, and then just click the work with me and you can book a mentoring session. All right, friends, that does it for this week's episode. It was edited and produced by Chris Fafalius. I'm Mike Myers. Thanks for listening.